Well, I'm guessing I might know the answer to this question, but how many of you have ever been hurt or let down by a friend before? Probably everybody, just about. It's a, it happens. Sometimes people make a mistake. People are thinking of themselves and, and uh, things happen. Or maybe you've been hurt by an enemy. Maybe it wasn't a friend. Maybe somebody that you never you knew never really cared about you um, hurt you. you you've, I'm guessing that at some point in our lives we've all felt alone or, or left out or rejected. And it's not easy to deal with. It's never fun to, to have to go through that. If you think about the people who have hurt you in the past and then the people that have let you down or turned their back on you or maybe they betrayed your trust or something like that, you know, sometimes that can happen by a mistake. It's carelessness or whatever. They didn't really mean it. But then there's the people that they don't seem to care about anything but themselves. And, and so they, have, they would cheat on you or lie to you or take advantage of you to get ahead or, or help themselves knowing that they're going to hurt you. And how do you feel about that? Like, what do you think about those kind of people? Usually not very highly, I'm sure. How about the... <laughs> What about the people that you don't know at all that make you mad? Like the people that cut you off in traffic. That, that I often have wished that I, there was some sort of remote control that when somebody does something stupid in front of me, I could push that button. Rick <laughs> is shaking his head, yes. And they would, they would pull over and their car would stop until I get by them. Like, oh, how I wish I could do that. Have you ever imagined a mean person or, or a stupid, careless person getting a taste of their own medicine. You ever thought about that? I'm guessing most of us have, and if you're saying you're not, I'm wondering if you're telling the truth. Because it can be so tempting to think that way, to just, I hope you get what you deserve soon. You know, that, that, or, you know that, so you see somebody that you know is mean or they've done something to hurt you, and they wind up falling on their face because of it. And you think, good. They got what they, 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 were, they needed that. And, and it's so easy to think that way at, until we're the person making the careless, stupid mistake. And then it's easy to forgive ourselves a lot. But, but it's probably because it's so tempting to you know, just want, not necessarily vengeance, but comeuppance. You know what I mean? And that's probably why I've, you've maybe heard this before, that people take the golden rule and they've made up their own versions. Like if, if you ever heard somebody say, do unto others before they do unto you, yeah, right. And that's the way the world thinks, right? That I'm going to make sure that I take care of myself and, and not let anybody hurt me. And, and, or then there's the one that's kind of similar, but a, a little bit of a different topic, that the one who has the gold makes the rules. Ever heard that one? Which is kind of true in, in, our, in our society and in our own government sometimes. But, but what does the real golden rule say? I'm guessing you all know it. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you, right? You treat other people the way you want them to treat you. That's what the golden rule is. And it it's comes out of the Bible, though it's never called the golden rule in, in Scripture. Actually, that title apparently came from a pagan. The golden rule, the title of it. And he, it was a Roman emperor named Alexander Severus who took the throne in the year 222. So a couple hundred years after Jesus was around, this Roman Caesar heard this verse from Scripture. So, so I don't know if he was heard some Christians talking or whatever, but he heard this verse that Jesus talked that said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And he liked it so much and thought it was such a good 
He's like, that's good. And he started sharing it with other people. He actually started having having it inscripted on public buildings and painted in the inside of his house. He had his own private chapel. He was a pagan. So in, in his chapel, he had like, you know, Roman gods and he actually had a picture of Jesus and just like, you know, had this smorgasbord. And he had apparently written in his chapel the golden rule. And, and they call it the golden rule because at least the legend says that it was written in gold, that he had it painted on his walls in gold. And that's why it's called the golden rule. And he went around telling everybody about it and, and trying to live. He tried to live that rule, but he thought that's a good idea. I'm going to try to do that. Uh, you know? and, and wouldn't it be nice if all government leaders thought that way? If, they, if everybody who was in charge of running something said, you know, I'm going to do my best to treat other people the way I would like to be treated. That's the way I'm going to run you know, whatever I'm in charge of. Wouldn't it be nice? And wouldn't it be nice if everybody lived, not just leaders, but if everybody from the lowest to the highest all thought, I'm going to do to others what I want them to do to me. I'm going to do my best to treat other people how I want to be treated. What would society be like if everybody lived that way? That one simple, easy rule. Our prisons wouldn't be overcrowded. Matter of fact, we probably wouldn't need prisons at all. I don't know if we'd even need police or, or military. If everybody did to everybody else what they wanted done to themselves, we, we would have peace. Nobody would lie. Nobody would steal. You wouldn't have to worry about locking your doors or, 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 or worry about letting your children play outside or walk to school the way your parents were these days. Or you wouldn't have to worry about getting ripped off by a used car dealer because they'd be honest. They would. Tr- I mean, every, you would... Everything would be fair and just and, and you'd have good deals on all the stuff you bought. What a wonderful society we could have if everybody simply treated everybody else the way they would want to be treated by other people. Of course, that's easy to, to say. It's easy to write in words. You can post it on your buildings or in your private chapel or whatever. You could even paint it on, in, in gold on your own walls inside your house and quote it every day and think that's, that's what I'm going to... To, to, to live by. But living by it is a lot harder than writing it down or saying it. And, and especially when you think about the people who have hurt you and the people who have done things to take advantage of you or cheat on you or, or stab you in the back or whatever. You think about those people, do you still want to live by the golden rule? That's a harder thing to actually do. And ironically, it seems like most of the time when we quote the golden rule, it's because somebody has already done wrong and not treated people well. I've, I have tried to teach my kids to treat other people the way they want to be treated. And I almost always say it after they've done something mean. Don't hit your sister. Would you want somebody else to hit you? No. Then don't do that to other people. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. So it's, I'm catching them after they've done something wrong and saying that's not what you're supposed to do. And so we bring it up a lot of times when somebody's already messed up. And it seems like when people are choosing how to treat other people, when you're thinking, how am I going to you know, react, that there's always stipulations. When we decide how we're going to treat whoever it is, friends, family, coworkers, that there's always conditions in our, you know, in our mind. You know, you be nice to me and I'll be nice to you. If, you know, as long as we, you treat me well, I'm going to treat you well. That's how we interact in public. That's usually the way we do it. If somebody's rude to us, then we don't really try very hard to be nice to them. But if somebody's nice to us, then we usually respond in kind. That's kind of typical of people. 
But we saw just a couple of chapters ago how Jesus said even the worst people in the world do that. The sinners and the tax collectors. Matthew 5.46 says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? So the turncoat tax collectors who were collecting money from their brothers and sending it off to the Roman government, even those nasty, rotten people were good enough to love the people who loved them, to treat others the way they were treated, to respond in kind. But Jesus says, no, I want you to love everybody, regardless of how they treat you. True love is giving and even sacrificial at times. And Jesus told us to love our enemies, not just the people who treat us well. And then he modeled that by going to the cross for us. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says. While we were still God's enemies, Jesus loved us and went to the cross. And, and that's treating others. That's the way he treated others the way he would want to be treated. And, he, and that's what he's saying to do. Follow me and do what I do. And, and, there have, and this idea, or at least similar ideas, have been tossed around and, and used in various cultures down through the ages. The, one of the oldest sayings, it's kind of similar to the golden rule, that, at least that we know about, came from the ancient Chinese philosopher Confucius. You've heard Confucius say, um, well, he said, and this was about 500 years before Jesus, he said, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. And that's pretty close, right? It's, it's a similar idea. But there's one big difference. And it actually is, a, if you think about it, it's really a big deal. And, and I'm sure you caught it. It's, a, it's kind of the negative version. Do not do what you wouldn't want done to you instead of do what you would want done. And and there are other cultures that had similar ethics that they lived by that, or you know that was kind of a, a societal rule that down you know through history there have been people that have lived that way, but nobody ever really put it quite like Jesus, where he took it and put it into the positive: do unto others what you would want them to do to you. And and it's probably because the do not do version is a lot easier to live by, because you don't really have to do anything. As long as you leave other people alone, then you're following the rule. You're not doing unto others. So all you got to do is ignore other people. And then it's not a problem, right? Just stay out of their way, leave them alone, and you don't really have to care. You just you know, let them live their life and you live your own life. It's easy. And, and some people call it the silver rule because of that. It's not quite the golden rule. But it's, it's pretty good, you know, because you shouldn't be hurting people and lying and cheating and stealing. So if you just stay back and leave them alone, that's kind of good. And it sounds about the same, but it's fundamentally different on, on this level. Jesus isn't calling us for just, just to leave people alone and stay out of their way and, and not care about them. He's telling us to actually to care about the people around us. Regardless of how, how they treat us, to really care about who they are as a, a, a creation of God, as a child of God. And, and we're supposed to be proactive in reaching out to those people and doing things for them because that's how we would want people to do for us. And in order to obey the golden rule, we have to act. We have to do something. It's so much easier to not hurt somebody than it is to put in the effort and energy to show them love and work for their good. Right? 
which is why Jesus is talking to us as his followers, as he's giving this sermon, he's saying this is how disciples live. That you know, the world at large, they can do the silver rule. That even the tax collectors and sinners, they can treat people the way they're treated or you know, try to not hurt people because they don't want to get hurt. But And going by all of human history, the world doesn't seem to have much interest in following the golden rule. I mean, if you look down through history, there have always been people that have not been treating people the way they want to be treated. But Jesus is telling us this way of life that I'm talking about, that we've been going through in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the way the kingdom is supposed to live. That if you're a part of the kingdom, you're my follower, this is how you're supposed to live your life. If you want to be my disciple, you are called to live this way. And if you really stop to think about it, which is what we're doing together this morning, because this is all about the golden rule this morning, you'll see how this, and it's just one verse that I'm focusing on. This one verse, Matthew 7.12, actually encapsulates what it means to be the church and to live as the body of Christ. Of course, the golden rule is not our salvation. This isn't how you get saved or anything. Nobody is going to he- going to heaven because they treated other people well. That's not the point. Salvation, we know, is the work of Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And if it wasn't for what He did on the cross, we'd all be in big trouble. And so Jesus is the one who decided while we were still His enemies that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and, and, and loved us in spite of who we were. And so we're saved when we put our faith and trust in Him. And that's, that's all we got to do. I mean, it's, in fact, when people ask Jesus, what must we do to accomplish the deeds that God requires? Jesus says in John 6.29, this is the deed God requires, to believe in the One whom He sent. Which sounds easy. I mean, you don't, you don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe. But if we just believe, and if Jesus is the one who has done all the work required for salvation, if He's done the saving work, and He says, like He said on the cross, it is finished, it's done, I've taken care of it, and all we have to do is, is kind of assent to that, and there's nothing that we can do to kind of earn or buy our own salvation, then what are all these commands that Jesus has been giving? Like, why is he telling us all this stuff in the Sermon on the Mount? This is how you're supposed to live in the kingdom. How does the Sermon on the Mount and this idea of doing unto others, how does that mesh with the idea of grace and that Jesus has done all the work necessary for salvation? What's that mean for our lives? Does this mean that we really don't have to pay attention to all this stuff Jesus is telling us to do? That this golden rule idea, that's a nice suggestion, but we don't really have to worry about it, do we? I mean, we can be nice. We can do unto others who we really care about and, you know, our, our friends and our neighbors and our family. But when that jerk cuts us off down the road, we don't really have to obey the golden rule, do we? When somebody cheats on us or lies to us or stabs us in the back, do we have to go by the golden rule? Well, Jesus says, no, you don't have to if you're a complete fool. In fact, we hear him say that himself. In, in a couple of paragraphs, he says, the wise person who builds on the rock is the one who hears the words of Jesus and does them. And, and so the thing we often miss here is that obeying the teachings of Jesus is something that is produced by salvation. 
that yeah, but getting saved is easy because Jesus has done all the work. I mean, it's 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 hard. It's easy in a sense is that we don't have to do any work. It's hard in the sense that we have to give up our evil self. Like we have to give up our sin. We have to say, you know what? That was a stupid thing to do, and that's going to get me nothing but trouble. And we have to go through the. It's hard to change your mind sometimes to say, okay, God, I'll submit to you. And that's a very difficult thing. But we don't have to do any work for it. We just have to make that very difficult mental decision to say, you know what? I've tried it my way and I've screwed up my life. I can't do that anymore. God, I'm going to do it your way from now on. And, and when we do that, the, the work that Jesus has done by giving His life as a sacrifice, by becoming the atonement for our sin so that we might be cleansed of sin and, and made new, that Grace, that transformation then produces these things that Jesus has been talking about on the Sermon on the Mount. That that comes out of this gift that Jesus doesn't just save us. He saves us and equips us to live the way we were always meant to live. And it, so it comes out of salvation. It's a, it's a fruit of our salvation. And, and it's almost like the grace of God is a, is a seed that's germinated in our hearts. When we finally say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you from now on. That he plants this living thing inside of us that, you know, he says it's, it's like water that keeps on welling up and overflowing. And life just keeps coming out. And so this seed grows in us. And, it's, and if salvation is truly alive and at work in us, then, then we see that grow and produce fruit. And we call it the spiritual fruit. You know, we talk about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all those things that we see it coming out. And sometimes we're surprised. Well, I, I can't. I was never like this. It's crazy to see that I'm, I'm, I'm a totally different person than I used to be. And it's all because of what Jesus has put inside of us and what he's, the, that He's changed us from the inside out. And, and so when Jesus talks about all these things we're supposed to do, it's, it's, the, the Jews had a different understanding. You've got to kind of have a, an Eastern mindset. You know, the Jews of Jesus' day and all these people who were around him paying attention, they didn't think about faith and action the way we do. You know, we think about them as kind of being totally separate things. That you believe something is not the same as doing something. That believe is kind of mental assent. You know, you believe or you don't believe in Santa Claus. You believe or you don't believe in Jesus. It doesn't really affect your life. But the, that's, not, that's our kind of Western way of thinking. When the people that listened to Jesus heard about it, they, it always went together. That Jesus and James, who was Jesus' brother, he talked about that. In James 2.17, he says, So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. So their under, the understanding, the biblical understanding of faith is you can't take it apart from works. That it, it's, it's like two sides of the same coin. You can't have faith without action. You can't have the action. Like you, you've got to have it together. You can't have one without the other. So when Jesus and the apostles talked about belief, they weren't talking about just intellectual assent, just saying, okay, yeah, I'll accept that you know, in my mind. They were talking about a belief that you do, not just a belief that you have. When we really trust Jesus, when we really take Him at His Word and what He's saying here, that means that we do what He says. Why? 
because we believe that he means it. That if you really believe that the things that Jesus is teaching are true, that what he says is that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then when he says something, you think what he is saying, that's the truth. That's how I live. That's the, that's the way we're supposed to be. And that he means, he, he means what he says and he says what he means. And if we, if we didn't do what he told us to do, if we didn't obey his commands, it would be because we didn't believe in him. That when we really, when we make our decisions about what we're going to do in life, whether we're going to choose to do right or choose to do wrong, that that comes out of what we really believe. And if you really, really trust Jesus, well, you're going to do what he tells you to do. Because you trust in him. Just like anybody that you really trust, if you trust what somebody tells you, then you're going to do what they tell you to do. If you don't trust them, then you're going to say, ah, I'm not so sure about that. I think I'm going to do my own thing. I don't know how many times Jenna asked me, you know, should I wear this dress or that dress? And I say, this one, and she wears that one. Sometimes I don't know why she asked, but <laughs> if you really don't trust somebody, then you're not going to do what they tell you to do, right? And so if we do believe in Jesus, we're going to do what he tells us to do. The same way that, you know, if, if you didn't believe that chair was going to hold you up, you would never sit on it, right? So the reason you sat on it is because you, you trusted it's going to hold me up. And you just sat down without even thinking about it. You sat down. And that's how we're supposed to look at Jesus. That it's just second nature. It's first nature once you have Jesus in you. That when Jesus says something, um, that's how I'm living. So our works don't save us. You, you cannot earn salvation. You cannot do enough good deeds to save yourself. Instead, they come out of our salvation. It's a part of our belief. And when you choose to believe, it's like a, it's a, it's a package deal. And the same way that you, you, you can't have faith without works, you, I mean, you, you, you can have dead faith without works, like James said. If you have faith but not works, it's kind of meaningless. because it, it You can also have dead works without faith. In a couple of paragraphs, um, John read a little bit, we'll look at the people who do things in the name of Jesus without any connection to Him. And they say, Lord, Lord, look at all these things we did in Your name. All these miracles and good works that we did on Your behalf, Lord. And how does Jesus respond to them? Go away. I never knew You. Your works were meaningless. If you have works without faith, it's just as pointless as if you have faith without works. So they have to go together. And it's really sad to think about. How many people are trying to buy their way into heaven with good deeds? You know, I, I, yeah, I've screwed up a few times, but I try to be a good person. And they think that's going to earn them some points somehow. And what's important is, is this belief that goes together. It's not just that we believe, nor is it just that we do unto others. It goes together. Rather, it's that our faith, that the grace and the salvation given to us by God motivate us to do good things for other people out of love and thankfulness for what Jesus has already done for us. That we believe Him and we obey Him because we've seen how much He loves us and that love overflows out of us to other people. Anybody who thinks that they're going to talk their way into heaven has completely missed the point. And, and, and it's not about convincing God of anything, good or bad. It's totally about a relationship and a connection that's alive and real. I mean, if you really care about anybody, you're going to do good things for them. I mean, I, 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 love, I do nice things for Jenna because I love her. I care about her. I do nice things for my children 
because I love them and I care about them. Anybody that you really care about, you're going to do your best to treat them well. And it's no different with God. If you really love Him and care about Him, you're going to do things because you love Him and care about Him. Not because you're worried He's going to squash you, but because I really care now. And I want to serve God because of my love. And that's the way it's supposed to work. It's a relationship. It's a connection. And, and anybody who really understands the amazing grace that God pours out on us because of what, how Jesus has, has worked to save us, anybody who understands the, the price that's been paid so that we might be set free from sin and death, they would never mention the things that they've accomplished for Jesus. They would never go, Lord, Lord, look at all the things that I've done. Because they would understand that not one of it would be possible without Jesus having saved us in the first place. And, and that He equips us for every good work. Without God's grace, even the very best of our efforts, the Bible says, are filthy rags. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, I have really struggled with the idea. In Philippians 2.12, it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with awe and reverence. And I, and I felt like, you know, I seem to get things wrong so often that God is just, He's eventually just going to get sick and tired of me. He's going to give up trying because I've let Him down one too many times. And, and, and I just felt over, like, burdened by that. And I don't know how I can do what Jesus is calling me to do. It just, am I, am I ever going to be good enough? And it's because I was trying to trust in my own strength when I read that. And I missed the very next verse, which says, for the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of His good pleasure is God. So, I can tell you from personal experience that things go way better when you're going through your day asking God for help to please Him because you care about Him and you know He cares about you than, than thinking about that you know God is just waiting for me to make a mistake in order to, to get rid of me. When we work out our salvation in fear and trembling. It's not because He's given us something fragile that we might accidentally drop and break. That's not the way faith is. You, I've given you this important gift. Now you better be extremely careful with it or you're going to be in big trouble, mister. That's not the way God thinks. That We've been given access to something so rich and so powerful and so moving that we want to make sure that we treat it with care so that we use it for good. That it's, you can't break it, but you, you want to use it, right? Because it can really change lives. It can change the lives around you. Paul talks about the idea of our liberty being something that we want to use well. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. Out in the, in the open west, like in Montana, there is little traffic and lots of miles in between things. And there are places where there is no speed limit. Isn't that neat to think about? At least for those of you who like to drive fast, I, I've, I've been known to drive a little fast sometime. When you get out there, you can drive as fast as you want or as fast as your car will let you go. But even though it's legal, it's still not a good idea to try driving 200 miles an hour to, go to get to work. I mean, I don't know how the fastest you've ever driven, but once you get up to those high speeds where you're tipping over into three digits and beyond, it can get pretty 
shaky. And even if your engine doesn't explode, really bad things can happen from the slightest error. I mean, the faster you go, the smaller mistakes it takes to make a big mistake. And so you, you're given this freedom to drive as fast as you want, but you also have to maintain responsibility of what you're doing. And it's this, kind of the same thing with God. This freedom that we're given by God comes with responsibility. Like you, maybe you've heard in the superhero movies, with great power comes great responsibility. And, and it's this idea that you know, most people are pretty happy when they get their driver's license. You know, when you turn 16 or whenever it was that you got your license, it's a celebration because now we have this new level of freedom. I can get in a car by myself and go wherever I want. And it's, and it's a nice feeling that I can, I can go places I never went before. And so we've got, we celebrate this new freedom. But with that card comes a whole bunch of rules and regulations to follow because if you don't take responsibility for this tons of fast-moving machinery that you're operating at high speeds, bad things can happen. People can get hurt or killed if you're not responsible with it. So with this freedom comes responsibility. And, and when Jesus saves us, man, it's something to celebrate. We're freed from sin and death. We're given so much. I mean, it's like the, it's a whole new life. And, and all of heaven celebrates us with it. It's such a good thing and we should enjoy that. But with it comes responsibility because now we're in a position to be a witness to the other people around us. We've been given this gift that is so important and so powerful. And we want to make sure that we present it to the rest of the world the right way so that they too can see that and turn to Jesus and be saved. We can point them to Jesus so they can find that same freedom. But if we ignore our responsibility and abuse it, then the people around us can see that and be turned off and, and, and not want anything to do with the Gospel or with God because they see our lives not lived well, and they think, that's, I don't want that. I want nothing to do with God if that's what Christians are like. So we're given responsibility to take this important gift, this wonderful, powerful blessing, and share it with the world in a responsible way so that they too can see how good it is and how wonderful it is and turn to Jesus and find their freedom too. So being the church, it's not about belonging to some institution. It's about living a way of life. It's, it, nobody earns their way in, in, into becoming a member of the body of Christ. You can't, it's, it's something that you can't, you know, we're adopted, we're grafted in. When you believe, you become a part of the body of Christ as, as part of that gift, as part of that blessing. And it's through the work of our Savior. And we're meant to live in that body in an in a new way of, of existing as a human being, different from the rest of the world. We're not supposed to live like the world. We're supposed to live in a brand new way, this way that Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount as, as part of His kingdom. And we think differently and we act differently and we treat other people differently than the way we did when we were part of the world. We're a different thing in this organism of the church. And we all come to it with our different talents and abilities and, and unique characteristics but we also live a whole new way together. We're humans, everybody, is made in the image of God, right? And so Paul says, 
all things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful, but I will not be controlled by anything. No, I'm, I'm sorry. The wrong verse. We're, we're made in the image of God, so I'm thinking Genesis. What did God say when he wanted to make us? Let's make man in the image of us. Let's make him like us. In our, in, in our likeness. So God made us like Him. What does that mean? What does it mean to be made in God's image or likeness? Well, most of the time we think of it in terms of like characteristic traits or the way our minds function. So we think and choose for ourselves. We make up our own minds. We're given the freedom to decide, am I going to follow God or not? And, and you know, animals don't live that way. Animals have instinct. And so they do what they've been pre-programmed to do. We don't live that way. We decide how we're going to live, what we're going to believe. And, and we're also given creativity so we can use our imagination and we can come up with new ideas and build new things. Kind of like God is creative. And also because God gave us dominion over the, all the other creatures on the earth. So He made us kind of miniature versions of Himself as rulers, as, as stewards of the earth and rulers over the animals. But there's one more way which we're meant to be like God and that is we're supposed to be in relationships. That God is a relational being. And He made us for a relationship. What's, what's God's observation of man in, in, this, in the next chapter? He said it is not good for man to be alone. That He meant for us to be together. It's not good for us to be by ourselves. And, and why isn't it good? Because we're made in God's image and God is not alone. God is, is this trinity that we we don't totally understand but he's revealed to us in three persons he's one god in three persons and so we see the father and we see the son and we see the holy spirit and they're one and have been one for all eternity and so even though there's one god there's never been a time when god was not in communion when god was not in relationship where there wasn't a, a love that was shared and experienced and and it's always been that way. So when God made us in His likeness, He made us to have relationship, to experience and share that love and that connection and that communion. Not only between us and God, but between us and other people. God made man and woman especially to share a unique bond of companionship. And, and in fact, Scripture reveals that the bond of marriage is meant to be a reflection of of the kind of relationship that Jesus wants with us. That that intimacy and that closeness and that trust and that companionship, that God wants that with every one of us. He wants us to feel close and connected and, and, and loved by, by Him. So all of our relationships tie into that and each other. And, and we as the church are described as the bride of Christ. That as, as together as a body, we're meant to be so close and connected and intimate with our Lord and Savior that it's like a marriage. That we feel that love and connection. That we share it. And it's, and it's communion. And we walk with, with God. And, and Jesus prayed that for us. He prayed that we all might be one the same way He and the Father are one. He wants all of us to be connected with each other as a body. Same way the cells of our bodies are all connected. And then and everything works together. If you cut off your finger, it's not going to do much good. We're all working together. And, and, and when Adam and Eve 
sinned when they ate that forbidden fruit, it, it wasn't just bad because they disobeyed. It was also because they, they destroyed that relationship. They, they, they had that close relationship with God in the garden. They could walk with Him and commune and talk and share with Him when they were there. And then they sinned. They, it, it, it was because of a lack of trust. It was a relationship breaker that drove a wedge between them and God. Right away, there was distrust. And, and right away, they were pointing fingers at, and, and laying blame. They became aware and ashamed of their nakedness. And instead of looking out to walk with God, they tried to hide from Him. And down through the ages, this broken relationship seems to have just gotten worse and worse and worse. And, and in spite of the, you know, we live in, the, the world is amazing now. We have all this technology and, and, and health and prosperity that we enjoy compared to so many cultures before us. And our connection to God and to each other just seems to be growing thinner and thinner and thinner. We have thousands of ways to connect with other people all around the world. You can pick up an electronic device and talk to somebody on the opposite side of the planet immediately. And, and we have all these apps for social connectivity. And yet, so many people are lonely and depressed and committing suicide in spite of all this ability to connect. Millions of people are taking medications to try and deal with the depression or stabilize their emotional well-being because they just feel like they're going off the rails. And millions more people are taking illicit drugs and drinking alcohol because they just want to numb that hurt and that ache and that separation from other people. They're just trying to deaden it so they don't feel it anymore. Why? Because we've decided instead of being connected, we've idolized the idea of the individual. That it's all about me and, and mine and what I want. Forget God and forget working for the betterment of humanity. In fact, people are fighting more in recent, like our governor here in Illinois, and more and more people are fighting for the, to make it a right to kill your own offspring. Like, why would anybody want to do that? You can go to jail for messing with an eagle's egg for two years if you mess with an eagle's egg. But you can kill your own offspring and not have to worry. Like, it's no big deal. And, and we have made ourselves number one. It's all about me. Forget the baby in the womb. Forget my neighbor. Forget my spouse. Forget my coworkers. Who cares? What's important is me. I above all else which has resulted in, it seems like, the worst spiritual and emotional and relational state of society that I think the world has ever known. In spite of all our wonderful technology to connect us, we are so separate. And it's become a problem in the church too. Instead of being a community, like in the books of Acts, where we define ourselves by what we do for each other, by what we give to each other, and how we love one another, and instead we define ourselves as these little subgroups all over the world where... We're competing over who can bring in the largest num numbers and have the flashiest sermon series or the, or the most popular music or the, you know, the, the fun things going on in our youth ministries or the ornate child care. You know, it's all these, we've got all these things that we can offer you, these flashy things that we advertise and, and get people in you know, butts in seats and count the numbers, and that's what's important. And the churchgoers have turned into consumers because of it. So they think, what can this little body of people give to me? What can you offer me to make me want to come to your church? Is your music good? 
Is your, is your coffee good? You know, it, it's all about my individual tastes and my desires rather than what we're supposed to be doing, and that is looking for a way to serve other people. Looking for a way to take what God has blessed me with and give to other people. How can I treat other people the way I want to be treated? That's not the way we go to church these days. We go to church saying, how can you serve me so that I might bless you with my presence? When what we ought to be thinking of is this golden rule. How can I do unto you? Because that's how I would want to be treated in a body. So we become disconnected from each other and disconnected from God in so many ways. And, and the church is a broken body in ways because of that. But Jesus came to fix this very thing. Jesus came to restore. He, he let His body be broken. We celebrate that at communion time. He let His body be broken that we might be made whole. And, and not just as individuals, but as his, as his followers, as a body of believers. Jesus gave His life to restore broken relationships, to reconnect us to God and to reconnect us to each other. He came so that we might know Him and be known by Him. And when we come to know and love Christ because of what He's done on our behalf, because of His sacrifice, that grace, that, he's, that gift that He's given us, that should be what motivates us to hear and do all these things that He's been telling us about in this Sermon on the Mount. The American church people have this tendency to make Christianity about my own personal relationship with Jesus. But that's not what Christianity is all about. I mean, it includes that, but Jesus wants us to look at a bigger picture than that and to see the world around us and to see the rest of the church and He wants us to spread and share that relationship. It's not about just me and Jesus all by ourselves. It's about me and Jesus and taking that love to the rest of the world. He wants us to, to connect and relate and, and for all true believers to be in accord, to be one, the same way that He and the Father are one. Building His kingdom and living and working together as His disciples. So Jesus gives us this golden rule to bring us into communion with each other. And it's Matthew seven twelve: In everything, treat others as you would want them to treat you. For this fulfills the law and the prophets. Remember what else Jesus said? Rests, all the law and the prophets rest on this? Love. Love one another. Love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength and love God, or love your neighbor as yourself. And in this rests all the law and the prophets. And this, so he's equating these two, that the golden rule and loving one another are kind of the same thing. And they're meant to tie together. It's that, and this, this dri the driving force of why we treat others the way we want to be treated is to be loved. Not just because we're following a rule, but because we care. Jesus treated us with mercy and kindness out of His love, and we should treat each other, even our enemies, with love. To truly love. If, I mean, if you love Jesus, if you say you love Jesus, then you have to love your neighbor. Because if you don't love your neighbor, then what's that say about your love with Jesus? It's kind of fake. If you really believe in God, that He is willing that none should perish, and that all should come to repentance then you're going to be motivated to share the good news because you want others to come to repentance too. If you really believe that Jesus meant when He said, that when he said if I be lifted up, then I will draw all men unto Me, then you're going to be pointing as many people as possible to Jesus so that they can be lifted up. Because you care and you want them to have it too. And remember, Jesus was telling us how God wants to bless us. Just, just in the last paragraph that we read before this verse, 
But he was telling us that as, as any good father wants to give good gifts to his children, so God, the best father of all, wants to give good gifts to us. And so out of that, that loving, kind, secure relationship, that, that generosity that God wants to show us, Jesus tells us to build our connection with each other and by treating other people the way we would want to be treated. So it's out of abundance that God is being generous to us, so let's us be generous to each other. The reason sin is so destructive and damages is because it destroys the relationships. Our relationship to God and to other people. It, it, and it, it's distrust. It's selfishness. It's, it's pointing us inward at, at me and what I want. So God's grace helps us to turn that vision back around and to look outward and, and to not be so selfish. Instead of looking at just my own needs and my desires, we look out for the needs of others. And we try to serve them proactively. Let me do for you what I would like to be done for me. And as a church, we're all meant to live in this, in a connection. If you've ever felt disconnected in the church, here, if you've ever felt let down or like something was lacking, you could just complain. You could just tell somebody, I don't like it there. I have too many problems. I'm just going to leave. Or you could do what Jesus is saying and take the first step and, hey, let me proactively do what I would want done to me. Something bad happened to me. How about if I do what I would want done to me and show people through example the way Jesus did? How about I help be a solution to the problem? I mean, it would be great if, if, if we could all be everybody's best friend. But one person can only do so much. I would love it if I had a magical fix for everyone's problems, for all the things that people brought to me and said, this is really, you know, uh, and I wish I could just snap my fingers and make it okay. But I'm also, I'm just one person. And... But together, as a group, with all of our interconnected relationships, even in this small connection, that we can help each other. And I've seen that happen, that when we come together to help somebody who's struggling, it makes a difference. When we pray together for other people, it makes a difference. And through us as a body, we can be a blessing to all of us. And we can be a blessing to outside people. And we help Al to reach out to people in Rockford and Chicago. And we help other missionaries around the world that as a body, together, we can do so much more than we can as just one person. And so, if, there, if you see a problem, you can be the solution to say, let me do what I would want done to me. And, and in the same way that all the people in your life want to know that, I mean, everybody wants to know that they're loved and appreciated and cared about. Which means we, as a body, need to be connected with God so that we're filled with His love so that we can reach out to those people. And that they can, we can make them feel loved and connected and cared about because that will spread and that will grow and that will cause them to also react and want to love and appreciate and care about us. And that means that we all need real and living relationships with the Lord because that's the source. That's where it comes from. God is love. So step one is to repent and believe in Jesus because He's done the work in order to save us. And when you come to grips with that, with what He has done to blot out your sins and make you a new person and to give you a new life in Christ, then you'll see why obeying the commands to love one another and to treat other way, people the way you want to be treated, it's a blessing to our own hearts and our own minds. It sets us free and gives us this power in His love that we can share with other people and, and improve the health of our church and our community and the world if we really believe it and do it. So in everything, treat others as you would want them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you so much that you, you really have gone over and above what anything that you ever had to do. You don't owe us anything and we don't deserve your love and yet you are a God of love and so you overflow it anyway. And while we were yet your enemies, you did so much to turn our lives around and to save us and to make us new. So God, I pray that you would help us to realize what a wonderful, fantastic gift that is. That we would not only grab a hold of it for ourselves, but that we would share it with other people. And that we really would live out your, your commands because we, we've been changed by you and we love and we care. And we not only that we, we realize that we, you care about us and we care about you, but that that makes us care about other people too and that we would share this wonderful news of your salvation and, and make a ch- difference in our world. Please help us, Jesus. And thank you for all your love. In your name we pray. Amen.